And the reading is from Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 to 8, beginning as on the screen at verse 1, Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you very much, John, for reading to us. New series starting this evening in Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, Therefore, please keep it open, and uh, I'm going to pray as we turn to look into those first eight verses a little more um, than we have so far. We thank you, Father, for that assurance that your word endures forever. We thank you that the Bible doesn't go out of date, that it's not going to be taken out of circulation because it becomes unreliable or it's hopes and promises will sort of fade and not deliver. We thank you that when you speak, you fulfill. And we pray, therefore, that you would stir up hope in our hearts this evening to trust you for the future on the basis of these amazing words. Keep us waiting with hope and expectancy and We thank you that as we do that, we will not be disappointed. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Monica isn't here, I don't think, tonight. She's got some musical stuff to attend to earlier in the next week and uh, asked for a reprieve from the service. But I want to say on the record tonight how grateful I am for her song choices, particularly just in, in keeping with Isaiah 40, A Bright Hope in the Future, even if there's waiting. I think there was waiting in the first song and waiting in the third song, which is very much, well, the first song was from Isaiah 40, so you'd expect it to agree. But hey, she's done a good job. Please encourage her. She does very well, it seems to me, in the uh, song choices for the evening service. One of the most influential plays to come out last century was written in the 60s by Samuel Beckett, and it was called Waiting for Godot. And uh, it was one of the plays I had to uh, study 
for my degree at university. It features four characters. I'm trying to remember it as I see what I've written down here and make sure I get it right. They're waiting for this mysterious character called Godot. Um, they don't know much about him, little if anything, um, only that they're called to wait for him. And in the play, as it unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear that Godot will never come. The hope that Godot will come is nothing but a pipe dream. That was a play that captured how lots of people felt about the existence of a personal God in a world which to many people gives loads of evidence that God is not around. Still there are some who continue waiting for God. Why would they do that? Generations come and go. Situations of human distress appear to multiply with every passing year. We gather for Remembrance Day observance every year with war still very much on the map all around the world. Surely people often feel it's time to give up on the dream and accept that God is not going to make an entrance into his world. You've heard that line of reasoning, I'm sure. Um, Maybe you've talked like that to yourself as you think about the world we live in or as you review your own life with its difficulties and disappointments. Now, if we ever think like that, Isaiah 40, we'll see, I hope, is a wonderful place to turn for encouragement. If you're familiar with the the whole book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet in the second half of the 8th century BC, and he lived in the area around Jerusalem. And for the first 39 chapters of his book, he's been warning the people of Judah that if they refuse to trust God, If they turn to others for help instead, they will fall under judgment. He's been saying in as many different ways as he can muster, you will be overrun by your enemies, you'll be cast off to exile in Babylon. So that's really the the message of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's book. It's a message of almost unrelenting judgment. But as we read on to Isaiah 40 and beyond it's clear we're emerging into a different world, a world of hope beyond despair. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That judgment did happen. The exile to Babylon came uh, long after Isaiah had died, over 100 years. But this is amazing. Even before the exile itself had happened, God was promising through Isaiah an end to the exile. A word of comfort to those who might well feel they were alone in a hostile world, waiting for God, wondering if he's ever going to show his face. And it's actually doubly encouraging for us today, if we're tempted to despair, because Isaiah's promises actually look even further on for their fulfillment than the exile in Babylon. They promise an answer to the disappointment we all feel from living in a fallen world, which may be was beyond Isaiah's power to visualize. Because it's an answer that only fully comes when Jesus Christ returns, actually. Um, We're about to enter the season of Advent in the church calendar. That's one of the themes of the Advent Caesar. But that is an answer which has been guaranteed by Jesus' first coming. So the hope builds because we can be confident that God will show up because he has shown up in person already, in the person of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah 40 is looking on all the time, 
to that event, beyond Babylon, to Jesus' first coming, beyond Jesus' first coming, to Jesus' second coming. I don't know what sort of circumstances in people's lives here might be piling up to cause you to doubt and despair, to wonder whether God is actually going to show up. You're waiting in some way. could be just the backlash of working hard in our service of the Lord. A lot of people I see working jolly hard, and you sometimes wonder, is it actually going to bear fruit? Is it going to be any dividends? I see aspects of the church life that are hugely encouraging. I don't know if you've picked up that the uh, mums from Tots are beaving away with Friday morning uh, course for uh, guests to come and hear a little bit about the Christian faith. I went to Tots on, on Wednesday. I couldn't believe how humming with activity it is. And sometimes others of us might be serving in other ways and we hear great things going on over there and we wonder, well, has God sort of forgotten about me and what I'm involved in? It doesn't always feel like we aren't being let down even if other people are encouraged. So I don't know what the circumstances are which might lead to, to disappointment or doubt for you. But the fact that God made these promises and has in part fulfilled them already in the return of the Jews from Babylon, in the arrival of Jesus Christ into the world, ought to give us grounds for confidence, even in the darkness of a world like ours, where it sometimes seems that God is not making his presence obvious. I want to tease out, sorry, long introduction there, but I want to tease out three strands to the promise of God in our verses. For a start, God promises pardon instead of judgment, and that's in verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, if we try to put ourselves into the shoes of the people in exile or about to go into exile in due time in Babylon... This would answer their fears, because you have to imagine they'd be asking themselves, is this the end of our relationship with God? Is there any way back from sin as serious and long-term as our rebellion has been? 39 chapters of judgment, the penny ought to be dropping that it's serious. Does the awful situation we're in mean God has completely rejected us, just as we've rejected him? And sometimes that is a question that occurs to us pastorally in our own Christian lives. We think because of our backsliding and um, the hard service is the word that Isaiah has that results from drifting from God. Life becomes hard often when we turn away from him. And to people like that who mourn their sin, God speaks reassurance. And I love the repetition, just in case we find it hard to believe. Comfort, comfort. And those vital uh, possessive pronouns or whatever they are, I'm not good at my grammar words, comfort my people, says your God. In other words, you're still my people. I'm still your God. And that's going to be true throughout the time in Babylon. So comfort is on. They might not be spared a temporal judgment on their sins, some judgment in this life, They go into exile. Sometimes our sins bring their own judgment direct 
directly some damage to others or to ourselves. At other times, God exposes us to what he calls here hard service, to teach us to take him more seriously. And he can do it through all sorts of circumstances, whatever they might be, turmoil at work or at home. So we won't necessarily be spared all the unpleasant side effects of our sin. But God, this is saying, will spare us the worst result of our sin, namely being unforgiven in the life to come. So through it all, we never stop being his people. And the pardon doesn't come cheaply in these verses. God can't just wave a magic wand over our sin and say it doesn't matter. The God of judgment can only become a God of comfort because sin has been paid for. You might have wondered as I read verse 2 whether that last little bit of verse 2 sounded a bit unfair. Hang on a minute. God demanding their sin be punished twice over? That was the question I I had as I looked at this verse um, before. But the idea behind that word double is a bit like folding a sheet of paper in two so that the two halves correspond exactly to each other. And what God means there is that There's a perfect fit between his people's sin and the payment for it. Somebody said in in one of those travel guides that there are four words you need to know in any language when you're traveling with others. You might ponder what they ought to be. What four words do you think you'd need to know in any language? Well, it's not, do you speak English? The four words you really need to know if you're traveling with other people is, my friend is paying. This is what the guide said, okay? And let me just say there are key words to know in our relationship with God. If we insist on paying for our sins ourselves, the debt will never be paid for for all eternity. But what if God could undertake to pay it for us? What if he could make a payment that matched exactly our sins. Well, that's what's being promised here. And you see it there, don't you? The payment is received from the Lord's hand. He did it. So is it just a a pious hope? Are we just waiting for God to deliver and our hopes are actually going to be dashed? Well, no. From this vantage point now, We know more than Isaiah could at this stage that God would indeed pay through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, an infinite price to cover for his people's sin. So we can trust this aspect of the promise, pardon instead of judgment. And that, let me just say, is the most fundamental need we all have. Do you know that you've got pardon instead of judgment? promised here let's move on to a second aspect of the promise power instead of defeat i'll read on verses three to five a voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord make straight in the desert a highway for our god every valley shall be raised up every mountain and hill made low the rough ground shall become level the rugged places a plain And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, my heading was that this is a promise of power instead of weakness, or power instead of defeat. 
You remember, it, it was a defeat that would take God's people into exile. This is a journey of about a thousand miles across the deserts of the Middle East. And they make it with their tails between their legs. In a culture where every deity was supposed to guard his own patch, all the surrounding nations were going to be saying at this point that Israel's God had, had lost, had been defeated. But now he's promising to lead his people back through the desert. And the heavenly bulldozers are out to build an eight-lane superhighway to make the journey quick and easy. Now, there may not have been a, a literal road carved through the wilderness when the Jews went home in 538 BC. But God flattened a mountain to get it done. He overruled the most powerful man of the day, Cyrus. And he then issued a decree giving complete freedom to the Jews to go home, even to build a temple. And they left without a single bomb or bullet, and that's power instead of weakness or defeat. But again, there are deeper levels to the promises that Isaiah is making. You notice how verse 3 has a voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. That was just the custom when royalty came. A herald would arrive as the advance party before uh, the king to get everything ready before the king arrived. And you sort of get the same thing today when when the queen makes an official visit somewhere. Um, Advance parties are sent out to prepare each place for her arrival. Somebody said that the queen probably thinks that the whole world smells of paint because about 10 yards in front of her, wherever she goes, there's always some guy painting to make sure everything's nice in advance of her arrival. And we've got Mark's gospel running in the mornings uh, in church. We've just seen how John the Baptist fulfilled that role of the the painter, the forerunner, perfectly. Uh, Before the coming of the Lord, in the person of Jesus Christ, he is that voice in the wilderness. Then when Jesus came, it was to bring an end to the spiritual exile we all have from God. That was an act of power, overcoming seemingly impossible odds. How can God ever be at home with God again? Well, only if God himself came and secured peace, which he did at the cross. And watch these multiple fulfillments, because even that first coming of the Lord doesn't exhaust the promises here. You notice how in verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it. I suppose that was partially true in the lifetime of Jesus, but that's going to be even more obvious when Jesus comes again. I mean, even now, there are no rivals to Jesus' glory, but there are still rebels against his rule. Yet when Jesus returns, all rebellion will be over. There won't be any dissenting voices at all. Nobody's going to say three cheers for Muhammad and Krishna and Jesus as if they're all equals. Only Jesus will have the position of glory at that point. And however hard it seems to imagine that in our world today, the mountains of non-Christian civilization are going to be brought low. I went hill walking with a bunch of people John Greaves was there. I don't know if you have ever had this experience, if you go up hills, of false peaks happening. You think you've got to the top. It looked like the top when you were approaching from below, but actually it's not the top because 
there's another peak beyond, or maybe another beyond that as well, multiple peaks. I mean, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies is a bit like that. To Isaiah's original audience, this prophecy must have looked like it was only concerned with the return from Babylon. And God fulfilled that prediction 100 years or so on. But one peak, there's more beyond. It was also fulfilled, you see this, when John the Baptist came and Jesus after him. So that could be a second peak. And you and I actually, where we're living, find ourselves in the dip between the second peak and the third peak. That'll be when Jesus comes again and the spiritual exile is fully and finally over. And what a work of power it's going to be to rebuild the universe so it's perfect. But actually, the very fact that God has already kept these promises in the first two instances means that we can be confident that he'll keep them in full to the letter one day. So don't lose heart, says Isaiah. We might feel like ours is a position of weakness. Maybe you're the only voice for Christ in your family or in your office. But next time you feel like it's not worth continuing, waiting for God, remember that peaks one and two have already happened. So hang on to the promise, power instead of defeat or weakness. One other aspect of God's promise here, which we'll look at briefly, in verses 6 to 8, he offers permanence instead of transience. Permanence instead of transience. The voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. And it seems to me that these words help us to grasp why Isaiah was preaching about the exile so long before it happened. It was a demonstration of what he's saying here in verse 8. The word of our God stands forever. When God promises something, he doesn't have to eat his words and retract it as we so often do. His word stands forever. Because, of course, he stands forever. He's never going to look at events unfolding and say to himself, Ooh, golly, that's taken me by surprise. I wish I hadn't made those promises. How am I ever going to fix things up now so we get back on schedule? He's never going to talk like that. He stands outside time, and he rules over time. And by predicting the return from exile, even before the exile had happened, God was making that point. Contrast that with the human condition we're all aware of. You and I are very transient and short-lived. Death casts a shadow over all of us, even the most successful of us all. I read about one distinguished French politician who just celebrated his 90th birthday, and he was asked, how do you find life now you're 90? Fine, he replied, when you consider the alternative. 
because we're all aware, like that guy was, of the aging process in our own bodies. Somebody defined old age as that period in our lives when actions creak louder than words. We're aware of how short-lived and transient our existence is. We are like grass, which is physically weak anyway, but more than that, we are morally weak. And in judgment on our sin, the breath of the Lord blows on us and cuts us down. So is there no hope of permanence in our fleeting life? Well, yes, there is for the Christian in taking to heart God's promises. There's a lovely verse in 1 Peter, which says, You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Okay, time to wrap up. Where does it leave us if we're like the characters in Samuel Beckett's play, waiting for God? Even if we feel like we're exiled, weak, transient, we're aware of God's just and deserved judgment on our lives. If we are trusting God, we've got every reason to hang in there because God keeps his promises. Remember, the full speaks and the fulfillment, mountain peak number three. There's a lovely bit in Pilgrim's Progress which emphasizes how the promises of God hidden in the heart are the key to escaping doubt. Um, Christian and Hopeful, two of the characters, are in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. They're held captive by a giant called Despair. And suddenly... Christian remembers he's got a key. Oh, what a fool I've been to lie in this stinking dungeon, he says, when I could just as well have walked free. In my chest pocket, I've got a key called promise. That will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. So Hopeful interacts with him after this. Then, said Hopeful, that's good news. My good brother, do immediately take it out of your chest pocket and try it. And it carries on. Christian took the key from his chest pocket and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease so that Christian and Hopeful immediately came out, out of Doubting Castle, out of the captivity of that giant despair. Well, I'm sorry for that nice story to finish with. makes it sound a little easy to take the promises on board, but... I think he was onto something there. May God help us to appropriate his promises and to use them so that we can escape the doubt and despair that so easily comes our way. Let's pause for a moment and uh, pray. We pray, Heavenly Father, for the trust in your promises not to waver, for us to be confident that what you've promised you will deliver, 
And we thank you for every encouragement we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that that is so. We're going to lead us in a communion prayer in a moment, but as we remember the body broken of our Lord Jesus and the blood shed, let's remember afresh as we remember his sacrifice, the sacrifice of others, and turn from theirs to adore him even more for that uh, love which no one has any love greater than that to lay down their life for their friends, that greater love of Christ's. Let's pause and uh, reflect on the sacrifice that people have made for us before we uh, feed inwardly on his amazing sacrifice for us. Just a moment's silence to do that. <laughs> 